0: For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za. Uh, to encourage one another uh, to love the Lord Jesus and to be refreshed by Him. Uh, this morning I just have a, a few pastoral uh, announcements before we begin our time in the Word. Uh, first, Uh, i would like to just speak to all the members of the church please commit to coming to this uh, members only meeting next sunday it's going to be next sunday right here at the church at 5 p.m please do commit to coming to that meeting it is going to be it's an important uh, meeting in the life of our church ideally all members of the church should be there but if it is impractical for child care reasons and the like then at least every household should be there at that meeting. Every household should be represented. And if you know, if for some reason your household cannot be there, as you see closer to the time you can't be there, please do send me a, a message, and I will come and visit you. And if you uh, have children from above three, from about three years old to about eleven, you should have received a sheet. Uh, this morning. Um, and let me just tell you what we're doing with this sheet. Um, here at Heritage, we we want to have the kids with us in the service. Uh, but we do recognize, of course, that kids that are between zero and three years old are a bit harder to control. And so that's why we have uh, the creche. Uh, so if you have a child, and especially if your child perhaps is causing discomfort. For those around you in the service to listen to the service, please do consider using the crash, creche, especially um, in that early age, between a toddler age between uh, zero and three. Do consider using the creche so that uh, others can be able to worship and not be distracted. Uh, but there is a particular age when we, we, we want to have children in the service are between two and three and upwards we want children to be here engaging with the sermon so that the parents aren't just getting fed and the children feel like they they just come to church to have a party and so what we have here is sermon notes for kids and for the this will this works for the littlest kids three years old four years old it works for them but it also works for kids that are 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 as well, as it has different difficulties. You see here, you have a word that a pastor will give you every sermon. And then the child has to count how many times they hear that word. We have a space to draw a picture here. And for the older kids, we we have a section here for kids to say, these are the important words I heard, and these are the things that I don't understand. And that will give you as parents an opportunity to engage with your kids. So please do make use of these. We will be printing these out and giving these out every Lord's Day morning so that our children are also engaging with God's Word. And as we think about uh, family and and children and child-rearing and also uh, marriages and and singleness in the church, uh, we have decided to have a, uh, a, a conference, a family conference for the benefit of our church. Uh, it will be sometime early this year, most likely around April, uh, where we will have a, a focused time over about uh, a week or so, focused time of thinking through uh, life, thinking through uh, uh, family, marriage, husbands, wives, singleness in the church, how to navigate that at the, at the different stages of life, and also child, reali- child rearing, uh, thinking through how to discipline children, um, at what at what level, how do you practically work these things through? So we want to have that as a for, to benefit the church this year because we we are at that stage where we need to start thinking through these things as a church. And uh, again, I'm happy to announce that uh, Jeff Smith from Trinity Baptist Church in New Jersey has committed to come and talk to us from the scripture and having over 30 years of ministerial experience, he's going to come and, and speak to us on those subjects. Some of you might know uh, Pastor Al Martin. Well, Jeff Smith pastored with uh, Pastor Al Martin for 18 years, so he's at that same church that Al Martin was. So it's going to be a a good time for us uh, to focus. So do try and diarize that. We will give out uh, specific details uh, in the coming weeks. Well, with all of that out of the way now, won't you turn with me to your Bibles as we continue in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, we're continuing our study of the book of Acts, and this morning we find ourselves in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. We left off on verse 16 last week. Let me read for you until really the end of the chapter here. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the man whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Oh, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days Thodas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them, charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is God's word. And, and for the children who are trying to count the, the important word of the day, the important word of the day, is persecution so you can write that word down on your block and then start counting how many times you hear it one of the more challenging realities in the scripture is that God has enemies God has enemies there is a thread that runs through the scriptures that affirms that not all of God's creation is friendly with him since the beginning when we read the narrative in genesis of a wonderful creation that was very good and then we are introduced to a crafty serpent the scriptures have always been clear that some of his creation are against god the serpent and all of the serpent's children figuratively speaking speaking have opposed god and his plans the idea is always exactly the same as in that picture of the garden. God creates and plants a beautiful garden and the snake comes and mess, to mess it up. God starts his redemptive work in the world and the dragon, as we are told in Revelation, is against that work. God makes a nation out of the Israelites and within from the very same Israelites, comes generation after generation of God's enemies. The Father sends the Son to come on earth to redeem, and within the very same vineyard of Israel comes the Son's murderers. And here in our text this morning, we have clearly God working and nurturing His church, as we saw last week how He was working wonders and miracles among them, and growing the church, He was doing a wonderful work. But from Israel comes enemies for that work. From the same group where he had worked before, that same group now produces enemies for God's work. It's, of course, the same as what happened with the Lord Jesus Christ while he was walking the earth. At every turn, when Christ was walking here, he was opposed, spit on by his enemies. And the church now in front of us, following in the footsteps of Christ, is opposed, imprisoned, flogged for their faithfulness to Christ. Now, in in many ways, the church was warned about this. They were warned that those who oppose their master would not spare them. They were warned that the student is not greater than the master, so whatever was done to the master, they should expect to happen to them. And it is, is of course, the same for us. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life will suffer opposition. They will suffer persecution. If, If you want to live a godly life in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can bank on it. There will be opposition to you. And notice that Paul does not qualify that statement. He doesn't say you might suffer persecution, you might suffer, You might have people who oppose you. He says you will. It is a definite fact. In other words, if your life is bent on honoring the Lord Jesus Christ and His mission, God's enemies will not let you be. Those who oppose Christ, those who are opposed to His righteousness will not let you continue in the mission freely. They will come for you. In one way or another, Your your pursuit of righteousness will invite opposition in light of this this text in front of us this morning is important as we consider the work that we have to do if persecution is a reality then we need to know it we need to define it we need to understand it we need to understand how it works where does it come from And chiefly for our purposes, we need to figure out what our response to it must be. What is the sanctioned biblical response to opposition? In the text in front of us is a typical way that persecution works. And there is the typical godly response from the church in the book of Acts. Throughout the book of Acts, we will see similar episodes of the source of persecution, of the motivation of of persecution, and the necessary response by the church. We've already seen this a bit when we studied in chapter 4. We already saw opposition already came when we were in chapter 4, when Peter and John were imprisoned after they performed a miracle. And this is almost a repeat of that same persecution. It works a lot of the same way with a few details. And the pattern of persecution throughout the book of acts is so similar that we are able to see it and to confirm it so this morning we're going to to do things just a little bit differently we're going to look at this text under certain headings while we attempt to understand it in its context we want to understand first the source of persecution we want to understand the source of persecution We want to to actually define persecution. What is persecution exactly? And finally, we want to consider the biblical response to persecution. We want to understand the source of persecution. We want to define persecution. And we, we want to consider the biblical response to persecution. So verse 17 first gives us insight into the source of persecution. Look at verse 17 with me. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. We are told here that the the high priest of the day of the time, along with the Sadducees, were filled with what? With jealousy. With jealousy. However, the word translated as jealousy here, is the greek word zelos the word zelos now what does that remind you of in english zeal Uh, that that word that word zelos is oftentimes in the new testament translated as the english word zeal in fact i think the the english word zeal comes from zelos and one appropriate example where we see paul using the very same word this word Is when he discusses the zeal of the Jews in Romans chapter 10 and verse 2 now this is very important for us to understand so I'm gonna go to Romans chapter 10 verse verse 2 and you can come with me and hold your place if you like this is a very important text to try and understand where this persecution is coming from this is what Paul says I'll read for you from verse 1 of Romans chapter 10 he says brothers my heart's desire and prayer to God for them that is the Jews is that they may be saved for I bear them witness I am a witness on their behalf the Jews that they have a zeal a jealousy for God but not according to knowledge they have a jealousy for God they have a zeal for God but that zeal is not according to knowledge For, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul says here he is a witness for the Jews, he bears the Jews witness that they do indeed have a passionate zeal for God. They do indeed have a passionate jealousy for God. They sincerely have zeal for God, but that zeal is not in accordance with knowledge. You see, these men in our text this morning, here in verse 17, they're not deceiving themselves. They are zealous, Luke tells us. They are full of zeal. They are full of energy and jealousy for what they believe. And what they believe is that these Christians are perverting God's religion. And so they put them in prison. But Paul's words words must ring in our minds. It is not according to knowledge. They feel this passion, this zeal, deep down in their bones, but they're wrong. They feel it sincerely in their bones that this is the way things should be, but they're wrong. Luke is also concerned for us, actually, to see how clueless these religious leaders are. Actually, in the way that he writes this narrative, he wants us to see that the religious leaders are actually clueless. Throughout this passage, Luke emphasizes the religious leaders' lack of knowledge. In fact, many commentators believe that Luke is depicting the religious leaders here in a humorous way, showing them, as it were, as headless chickens who are running around doing stuff, not knowing what actually is going on. See, for example, first we see this in verse 21. In verse 21, they call for a trial for prisoners who are not in prison. Did you notice this? They're, they're sitting there. They have been. They're, they're sitting there, uh, expecting to wield their power on prisoners. And they say, "Okay, now that we've gathered the council, now bring the prisoners." There are no prisoners. This is meant to be humorous. It's meant to show that they actually don't know what's going on. In verse 24, Luke says it outright that when they heard that they that they're actually not in the prison, that they were perplexed. They were confused. They're they're just just busy and doing stuff, but they actually have no idea what on earth is actually going on. And this is pressed home when someone in verse 25 says, Behold, the people you put in prison are having a great time there out in the public in the temple teaching the people. So here you are, you guys, you, you think that you've got all this power here and you're controlling everything. But the people that you, have, you thought you put in prison, those people are freely in public teaching the people. It shows that these guys don't know what's going on. And not only that, but in verse 33, Gamaliel, the, the Pharisee, says something that should have been obvious to them. He says basically that if you continue to do this, if you continue to oppose these men, you might find yourselves opposing God. He says there were other guys who rose up and then died and then their followers came to nothing. And then the one guy was Therodes and the other guy was Judas. These guys, they rose up, they had followers, then they died and they came to nothing. And another guy rose up, then he died, came to nothing. So if it's of man, obviously this is going to come to nothing. But If it is of God, you will be found to be opposing God. So the the statement shows the cluelessness of the religious leaders. They have all this zeal and all this passion, but yet they have not stopped to consider whether or not it is God that they are opposing. They are full of activity. Let's put these guys in prison. Let's beat them up. Let's do all these things. But they have not sat down to actually reflect and actually question the facts of what exactly is going on. Luke is writing this narrative in a way that shows the two, two things: the religious leaders are zealous and full of threats and blowing hot anger in a hive of activity, but also the second thing is that they have no—they have no idea, they have no clue as to what is going on. They are—they are perplexed and confused but they are busy and want to fight. This brings up two things for us to consider here immediately. First, it is possible, dear saint, dear person here this morning, to be fully zealous, to be fully committed to something, and yet you are entirely wrong. We live in a day today where what I feel Right? The, the zeal that I feel about something is of chief importance. That's the most important thing. If I feel very passionate about things, it's important, it's true for me. If I think that this particular thing is really wrong, then everybody else must see it exactly the same way. And because I am sincerely convinced that this is the way things are, you are a fool for not seeing it. This goes into every area of life in the modern world. It goes into ideas of sexual identity, into political positions, economic theories, decisions that need to be made at work, wisdom decisions that need to be made at home on a daily basis. Literally, every area of life we hold convictions with zeal that we are jealous for, But it is possible, dear church, that we are sincerely zealous about something that we feel in our bones and we are entirely wrong. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're convinced that we're all wasting our time. Evolution is the acceptance science. There is no God. And there certainly certainly aren't any people rising from the dead. We're all wasting our time here. And I'm going to say to you, Consider that your zeal is sincere, but it is sincerely wrong. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're happy to be at church, but your, your heart, your, your zeal is to consult the ancestors for the benefit of your life. To consult some medium, some kind of magic out there to for the benefit of your life. And you, you feel passionate about this when the, the things of life come at you. That's the first place you go to find some medium, to find someone, to communicate to someone else so that things can go right for you. Consider that your zeal is sincere, but it is sincerely wrong. Perhaps you're here, dear Christian, this morning, and you're having squabbles with other Christians in your life who just do not see things the way that you do, and you are zealous for them to see the way you see things. You have a passion for it. So, you start looking down on Christians who don't see things in that way. It is possible that while you are indeed zealous, you are wrong. You see, just because you have zeal does not mean that you are right. Just because you feel passionate about something, that you really feel this thing, does not mean that you are right. It is possible that you are entirely, completely wrong. You have a zeal, but it is not according to the truth, to knowledge. So what does this mean? This will say to us then that you need to interrogate your facts. Interrogate your facts. Ask questions. Interrogate yourself. Why is it that you feel this way? You know, just because you have a feeling does not mean that you need to act on it. Just because you have a feeling does not mean that that feeling, that that, that passion for that thing is the right thing you should feel passionate for. We always have feelings that we need to put aside, don't we? I mean, good grief. If we all acted on our feelings, all of us would be dead. Someone would have killed you because someone has wanted to kill you. And you probably would have killed somebody else. I mean, this... So just because you, 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 you feel this way, you really feel it, does not mean anything in terms of truth. You need to interrogate it. Why is it? Is it according to truth? Is it according to knowledge? Or are you just following the whims and feelings of your heart? Do you even, you know sometimes we, we, we are so passionate, but have you ever asked the question, do you actually really know what you are even talking about? Do you really know what you're talking about? Do do you actually understand all the contours of how this thing actually works? Do you have enough experience? You know, I I just find it funny when I I see young guys, seminarians, and they're like, yeah, well, you know, in the Greek it's like this, you know? And so I actually think that we're all doing it wrong. This is the way in the Greek and the Hebrew. And I'm like, yo, you've just taken one class of Hebrew and Greek and you think you know everything. Like, you've taken one class and now you're the expert. Are you really so right? You need to just calm down. I think we could just say, another thing we could say is just calm down, relax. Sometimes the things that we're so passionate about don't need that much passion. We need to interrogate our feelings and make sure that we're passionate for the right things that are indeed in accordance with truth. But, now, but as it relates to persecution, dare I say that zeal, this passion, this zeal is the source for most of the persecution that Christians have ever faced. When Christians are killed, opposed, reviled, it is because someone was zealous to go against God and they wanted to do what their God says or what, whatever their system says. And so Christians have had have had to suffer at the hands of other people's zeal. But it's not just that extreme when the people kill you or where people take you to prison. It also comes down to the normal opposition that Christians faced on a daily basis, perhaps at work. When Christians are made fun of by their peers, it is rarely apathetic. It is emotive. It might look sophisticated, you know someone says to you, wow, really? You, wow, you, you really don't believe in sex before marriage. Can you just honestly help me out here? How are you going to know if you're compatible? It, it sounds sophisticated. It sounds advanced and progressive. But don't be fooled by that look of sophistication. It comes from a heart that is zealous to do things against God. Romans 1 tells us that no one is just apathetic. No one is just here trying to be progressive. It's either people have kneeled to the will of God or they're doing what they want. So even if it looks sophisticated, the the thing that's pushing it is this zeal, this love and passion for something. What does this Well, this tells us that the source of persecution is deluded minds who are in opposition to God. But we haven't defined persecution yet. What is persecution? Well, here in our text, we can see it. They've been grabbed and they've been put in prison. In verse 27, they are put on trial for what they're doing for their obedience to God they're being put on trial in verse 27 you saw that and you see if you toss your eyes to verse 40 they are beaten up they are being flogged and harassed and beaten up so certainly whatever persecution is it can include those things throughout the scriptures when we are trying to answer questions that there are certain texts that explain doctrines better than others All the texts, of course, come together and give us all the different contours, but certain texts just are a cream. They explain things so much clearer than others. And it is my judgment that if we want a biblical answer to the question, what is true persecution, we must go to Matthew chapter 5. So hold your place in Acts and come with me for a second to Matthew chapter 5 and we're going to read verse 11. Matthew 5 verse 11. This is the Lord Jesus giving his famous sermon on the mountain. He is giving what is called the, the Beatitudes. Saying who are the truly blessed ones? Who are the truly happy ones? And in verse 11 he says this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Lord Jesus here teaches his disciples that they are to be happy, that they are to rejoice when others revile them, persecute them, utter all kinds of evils falsely about them on Christ's account. A few things to note from these two verses the range of actions that are done to these believers consist of hatred on Christ's account we're talking about when we're talking about persecution we're talking any amount of actions that are done to Christians because of Christ in other words if people utter all kinds of evil against you for any other reasons it is not persecution you with me you following that is a hardship that is a trial but that is not persecution if someone doesn't like my work they really just don't like my work and they say all kinds of things against me that is not persecution that is a trial it's because they don't like my work or maybe they don't like my personality or whatever it is If someone goes around gossiping about me because our two families have had spats for years but that has nothing to do with the fact that I am following Christ that is not persecution that is a trial that is a hardship that you you do need strength for to to endure him but that we can't we cannot call that persecution if you suffer a natural disaster that others who are not in Christ also suffer cancer disease Whatever it is that is not persecution. Persecution must be because of Christ according to this verse. Now of course all of these things can be because of Christ. People can perse- people can say all kinds of things about you at work because you're following Christ. People can do gossip about you because you are following Christ. And so just because so you don't don't mix the two. It's possible that those things are happening because of Christ. And then, in that case, it would be persecution. Notice that also Christ says here that if they utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely, falsely on my account. So if someone utters evil against you truthfully, that cannot be persecution. Yeah? If you are a jerk, and then people say that you are a jerk... You cannot now come and ask us to pray for you because you're being persecuted. <laughs> okay? You need to stop being a jerk. That's what you need to do. Peter echoes this in his letter when he says, Do not suffer as an evildoer, but suffer for righteousness sake. He says, don't, don't suffer for as an evildoer. Don't go to prison, don't go to trial because you really did something that is evil. Don't do that. If you must suffer in relation to other people, then let it be because of Christ. Let it be because of Christ. You are not supposed to be partaking in evil. And that, of course, that is exactly what is happening in our text. The church is simply existing, doing exactly what God has called them to, and so now they are being attacked and oppressed. Because they are following the Lord Jesus Christ, because they are sincere in following Him, and they continue following Him. So we've we've seen the source of persecution; it is this zeal that is not according to knowledge. We've seen now the definition of persecution, which is which which is a hatred because of Christ. Finally, now we come to the sanctioned biblical response to persecution. What is the sanctioned biblical response to persecution come back to me come back with me to acts chapter 5 and let's see how the church responds and there's three there's a number of different set texts here where we see how the church responds look at verse 19 but during the night an angel of the lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life And when they heard this, they entered the temple at Daybreak and began to teach. Notice the angel of the Lord did not tell them to do many things. The angel of the Lord did not tell them to pick up arms and go fight. The angel of the Lord did not tell them to try and go and create their own Christian country. The angel of the Lord did not tell them to separate themselves. The angel of the Lord told them to go and do exactly what it is that they've been told to do. To go teach the people about the gospel they are to do exactly it is what was what was their commission from the beginning persecution does not change the mission persecution does not alter what we are supposed to be doing persecution makes us maybe do it in a different way to try and be wise but we are always to do what the mission is look jump to verse 26 then the captain with the officers went and brought them so now this is after they the the, the council found out that they're not in prison anymore because the angel freed them so here it is verse 26 the captain with the officers went and brought them but not by force for they were afraid of being stoned by the people remember that they're afraid of being stoned by the people because we read last week that the people hold the apostles in high esteem and when they had brought them they set them before the council And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. This is almost a a recapitulation. It's a similar kind of thing that happened in chapter 4. When they were put on trial, the answer is almost exactly the same. It's repetitive. It's the same. It's we are we are not going to obey you you can beat us put us in prison do whatever you want to us we're not going to obey you we're going to obey god we're going to keep preaching this same gospel the gospel of that man that you guys killed we're going to keep preaching that same gospel and we must obey him jump with me to verse 14. and when they had called the apostles so now this is after gamaliel has spoken and told them told the 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 council to drop everything And when they had had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease, they did not stop teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. At each turn here, the apostles are imprisoned, threatened, beaten up. But they continue to preach the simple, clear gospel. Not only that, but notice here now in verse 41. Not only are they maintaining their faithfulness, but they maintain their faithfulness with joy. They rejoice that they are counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. What is the sanctioned biblical response to persecution? Faithfulness and rejoicing that we have been counted worthy to suffer for the name. That is the response. You see, dear friend, Christ is worth suffering for. The Lord Jesus Christ is worth suffering dishonor for. The apostles knew this and they rejoiced at their sufferings. There, there are many good causes to suffer for. There are many good causes that you can suffer for on the earth. There are many goods in the world that one would and to endure suffering for. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he's, he's another category. He's another category on His own. He is the capstone, the cornerstone. He is not just the King. He is the King of kings. He is not just the ruler, but he is the savior of men. He is of another sort entirely. To suffer for that man, to suffer because you are associated with that man, is a great honor bestowed upon your shoulders. It is a wonderful honor to have people hate you, to have people not give you a promotion, to have people slap you, to have people exclude you, because you associate with the man of God. To suffer for the excellent name of the Messiah is nothing to be taken lightly. When I am ridiculed because of my allegiance to the Magnificent One, the One who is holy, undefiled, whose eyes are like fire and whose feet are like burning bronze, that, my friends, is a privilege. That requires rejoicing. doesn't require grumbling doesn't require, oh, look at me, have pity on me. It says, wow, I've actually suffered. I've felt some pain before that man. Because I'm associated with that man. That is why if you're here this morning and you have not followed Jesus Christ, there is a glory that you do not know. Give me, a, give me your ear for a moment. There is a glory that you do not know. You see, I could tell you that if you come to Christ, your sins will be forgiven, and that is true. I could tell you that if you come to Christ, your guilt will be washed away, and that is very true. But this morning, I want to tell you that if you come to Christ, you will know Him. You will know the most magnificent being. You will know Him. You will have fellowship with the enigma, the logos, the true wisdom of all existence, and you will be associated with Him. When we say, come to Christ, we say that you are coming to find a man with such a depth, with such character, that he will leave you perplexed each time you get a glimpse of him. When we invite you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not inviting you to some trinkets. We're saying, come and see life. The life is all over him. Life comes from his mouth comes from his eyes comes from his face life is all around him he's the most glorious one when we invite you to Christ my friend you are being invited to true life to to know the man not a man the man to know the God not a God the God that's what we're inviting you when we invite you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ may he may God be pleased To reveal His Son to all of us today. And may God fill us with rejoicing whenever we are called to suffer for His name. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, what an excellent man you are. What an excellent man you are. Every Sunday morning as we pray, we try to find words. We look up dictionaries and thesauruses. We find synonyms and different things. Trying to find language to to explain your excellence. Trying to find something to describe your majesty, your kindness, your mercy, your everlasting love, your steadfast grace. The forgiveness that is found in you we grasp and we tickle and we grasp and we strain trying to find how can we explain how wonderful you are and invariable every Sunday morning we fail every Sunday morning we completely fail you are more excellent than we can imagine your being is radiant you imagine your majesty is completely total your power is pure Reveal Yourself to us. Even now as we come to the table, Lord Jesus, reveal Yourself to us. Strengthen us. Those of us who are weak, coming from a week of struggling with sin and struggling with different problems and being here, we pray now that You would strengthen us with this, Your flesh and blood. Strengthen us, Lord Jesus. And we pray for those who do not know this great grace, that our Lord, You would do them a kindness the greatest kindness of revealing yourself to them. In your name we pray. Amen.